Back in a distant past, a long time ago, a family was packing their belongings. And they weren't leaving on a holiday. They weren't going on a day trip. They were leaving for good. Tara was the name of this man. And he took his son, his grandson, his daughter-in-law, and everybody else that came along with that, the children, the spouses, the people that belonged to the household. And they left. They left a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. That was the name of the region where they lived. And they left. And they headed towards a land called Canaan. But for some reason, they cut short their journey and they stayed at a place called Haran and they settled there. And we don't know why Terah decided to leave Ur. We don't, we don't know why he decided to stay at this place called Haran. But he did. And some years later, his son was again packing his belongings to leave. And this time, we know why. We, we know why because, well, because it was registered, and we know why because it was a rather remarkable reason. A divine voice had spoken to him. God had addressed him in person. How? We don't really know. But we know what he was told. He was given a promise. Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He was a childless man named Abram, which rather ironically means exalted father. But he would still come to be known as Abraham, which is probably how you know him, if you have heard of him, which the most likely translation is father of many. And Abraham packed, packed his things and left. And as he arrived at Canaan, he again heard the divine voice saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. Centuries upon centuries later, a wandering teacher walked those same hills those same valleys, those same plains, those same shores of the rivers and waterways. And this wandering teacher was a part of a people that trace their ancestry and their spiritual lineage to Abraham, to the man of the promise. And as this man walked the land, people followed. And as he sat down or stood to speak, people sat down and listened. It was a wandering rabbi, a teacher. And they listened 
as he said quite remarkable things, really. Quite unusual things. Things like, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Things like, I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I figure most of us know who I'm talking about. His name was Jesus, a name that fittingly means God saves, the Lord saves. A few decades on, a few decades later, another wandering preacher, wandering preacher and letter writer who traced his ancestry and his spiritual lineage to Abraham, the man of the promise, but who traced his spiritual awakening and his personal transformation to Jesus, the wandering preacher of the wonderful words. And this other wandering preacher and letter writer, he argues with an intensity that was very characteristic to him as a person. And he argued that these two stories... These two stories, the story of the displaced Abraham hearing the voice of God and the story of the displaced Jesus speaking the voice of God, that these two stories were intimately connected and that they expressed one same thing about God's action in and beyond history. And that is that God's revelation to humankind is a revelation of grace. That God acts towards and for humanity through grace. The name of this preacher was Paul. And this is what Paul writes in a letter to the churches of Galatia. So the followers of this wandering preacher, Christ, in the province of Galatia. And I want to read from verse 15. I'm going to read from 15 to 18. Chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Galatians from 15 to 18. And it says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, or to his offspring, depending on your translation. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace 
gave it to Abraham through a promise. Paul is doing something here. Uh, he is interpreting, as Jews would do, their scriptures. He is interpreting their tradition, right? And he's interpreting one of the main events of how they understood themselves, which is the promise and the calling of Abraham. And he is interpreting it under the light of these new events, which are Christ, his death, and his resurrection. And Paul is saying, this Christ, who many of you heard about, and many of you at the time of Paul maybe even saw and witnessed with your own lives, this Christ, this Jesus, whom the Romans killed on the cross with the blessing of the Jews and of all of those who were there, this Christ who resurrected to life, he is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. And he does this interpretation with the language, right? He does this thing of bringing forth a reading of what this means. And to make his argument, he hooks on this uh, singular or plural thing, right? He says that when, when God promises to Abraham, uh, gives his promise to Abraham, he speaks of an offspring. And he says that's singular. And his point is that God is giving Abraham a prophetic promise or a promise that will be fulfilled in time and that the fulfillment of that promise is Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? Aside from, you know, all the grammar and all of that stuff, what is his, you know, what is his actual underlying point? His point, point is what God gave to Abraham was a promise through grace. He calls Abraham. He makes no other demands than to say, follow me. And he says, here, this is the promise. And then he goes to Jesus and he says, what Jesus does in his death and in his resurrection is again an act of grace, a free act of grace. And these two points, by connecting them through this interpretation of what the promise of Abraham means in terms of Jesus, by connecting them, he's saying there is an underlying, overflowing element here, which is God's grace. And because this is in both ends, we need to interpret everything that happens in between and beyond under this one lens, this one understanding of grace. And Paul is talking about this as a, a background for addressing something else, if we, and we saw this when we were reading the text, which is the issue of the law. And then it's worth asking, why is Paul speaking about the law anyway? Right? Why is Paul speaking about the law anyway? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. One reason is, historical and has to do with identity. As I said, Paul himself was a Jew, and Paul himself uh, had his lineage and, and his spiritual and ancestry 
going all the way back to Abraham. And as the story goes, the story within which uh, the Jewish people, and for years and years and years, the people that understood themselves as the people of God placed themselves, is a story that goes from Abraham, but they understand that promise is being fulfilled through time, through Abraham and his descendants, until you come to Moses, and you come to the establishing of the people of God, and you come to the law. And at one point in this history, you have the people going to Egypt, you have all of that, but you have acts of deliverance, and then you have the law being given to these people who understand themselves to be the descendants of Abraham, the ones in which the promise of God was being fulfilled. And they receive the law, and they live it out as an expression of that very faith. So for these people, the living of the law is intimately connected to the promise given to Abraham. This is how we're living out the promise. Right. The law was one of the main expressions of the Jewish faith and of the Jewish identity. And by the law, by the way, we're talking about, and this is, gets complicated because uh, scriptures and, and Paul swaps between talking about the law in terms of a more restrict uh, part of, this, of the scriptures that has what we call the, the for instance, the ten, ten Commandments and these direct regulations around when God gives the law to Moses in Mount Sinai. And sometimes he's talking about the whole, whole Torah, which is the first five books of the Jewish scriptures, which tell the story within which the law is given. Right? But that's one reason. This is Paul's own history, and it's his own identity, and it is a way in which the people have understood their expression of the promise for centuries. But there's another reason, and the other reason is what's going on in Galatia. And we've been talking about this, but it's always worth repeating. And what happens is that after Christ, the message of Christ is being spread and is being spoken of and is being announced to all people, also to non-Jews. Right? And this is Paul's Paul thing. Right? He's saying... Christ in his death and resurrection brings life and brings redemption and brings a new possibility of life to all. And one of the places where Paul goes and, sp and speaks of this message is the provinces of Galatia, which were mainly non-Jew, Gentile. But after he has been there and established these communities of faith, other followers come, other Christians, other followers of Christ, who, are, who have a different understanding and who start telling these communities that in order to follow Christ, they must fulfill the law. They must follow the law. And this creates a conflict in Galatia, and it is into that context that Paul is speaking. It is into this context that Paul is drawing the connection between Jesus and Abraham. And he's doing that to emphasize, again, what we might call the principle of grace. And his point with arguing that Jesus is the offspring that fulfills the promise to Abraham is, to, again, to say that whatever we do with or however we understand what has happened between, in between and will happen thereafter must be understood and lived from the perspective of grace and promise and not the other way around. So he wants to change the direction because these people are coming to the communities, and they're saying, if you want to come to God and to Christ, you have to come through the law. 
And Paul is saying, no, we look at the law from the perspective of grace and of what God has done. He connects these points and he says, this is the overarching theme. And through this logic, we look into the law. Now, why? Uh, the, quest, the natural reply then to Paul's argument in this context then is, well, then, so what? What do we do with the law? What do we do with the centuries in which this has been the main expression of the promise? And Paul goes on. I want to read a bit further with you from verse 19 to 29. He says, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All of this... <laughs> can sound very confusing, right? But the question is, what do we do with this lived expression of faith that has been the law? Why was it there anyway? And Paul's point is that when we wield the law as a means of salvation and as a means of belonging, then that law becomes a curse. And we've been talking about this a bit before these past Sundays, but Paul is not struggling or fighting with the Torah as an expression of faith. But what Paul is saying is, if this is what defines our belonging, we, we misunderstood the promise, we misunderstood God's grace altogether. He's saying if we think we will live by the law, the law itself condemns us. Because it contains within its own logic or damnation. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a system. It's a system. The law is in that sense kind of like a cold light, right? It can illuminate sin. It can show transgression. But it can't transform us. It cannot transform the nature of that which is seen by it. And there are two ways of, I believe, dealing with the law 
to oppress. And I guess part of the problem is we keep on talking about the law, right? And it sounds like we're talking about something from centuries ago, right? And of course it is. <laughs> this is the spirituality of a people that is still around, right? But we need to remember that we're talking about an earnest desire to live well in order to please God and in order to live. But there are different ways in which we can deal with the law. And Paul is arguing that, or from Paul we can argue that one way is to impose the law. And with that, to impose its curse. And that's what Paul is fighting with here. He's saying, if we make the, put the law above grace, we condemn ourselves by a system that we have no way out of. But if we submit the law to the grace, to the principle of grace, it's something else. It's something else altogether. So one way of wielding the law is to uh, impose it, and in that way it becomes a condemnation. And we know all of that, right? But there's another way, and this is where I wanted to get it, actually, because all of this seems a bit foreign to us, doesn't it? It seems a bit, it's not our story. But the question is, if the law was for the people of God, an identity marker that guided their community life, then it's worth asking, how does the freedom and grace of Christ actually shape our community life if we dare to deal with the reality of sin. If the law illuminated this reality, as Paul argues when he's arguing that it's a custodian, and I'm not going to go into all of that now, right? It served to show, then what does it mean to deal with the reality of sin under the gaze of grace? Because there's two ways, I said, of dealing with the law to essentially oppress and exclude and ignore. One is to impose the law, and with that, it's cursed. But another one is to ignore that which the law in its time and in its space addresses, which is the reality of sin, of brokenness. Of... Because what we sometimes fail to understand or fail to remember is that the law, and that is Paul's main argument, and actually not only Paul's, but is that the law is not trying to answer. If we take the law to try to answer the question of how to come to God, if we think, take the, God, the law as a means to get to God, we misunderstand it, of how to live. But if we understand it as an expression of how to live well from a space of grace and belonging, we're starting to come in to what we're talking about. If the law was for the people of God an identity marker that guided their community of life, the question for us is, well, 
How does freedom and grace in Christ actually shape our community as we dare to deal with the reality of sin? And Paul is bringing all of this because this handling of the law is creating brokenness and it's breaking community. And I found, as I was reading and, and thinking about this, I found this little exercise of imagination that I think is worth, for us, worth it for us today as we try to reflect on this. And it's from two authors called John Dominic Crossan and Jonathan Lee, uh, Reed, and they are talking about this part of the, of the text, and they imagine this conversation with the Apostle Paul. And the conversation goes like this. Do you think, Paul, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights? And Paul answers, I am not speaking about all men, but about Christians. But do you think, Paul, that all people should be Christian? And Paul answers, yes, of course. Then do you think, Paul, that it is God's will for all people to be equal with one another? And Paul answers, well, let me think about that one for a while. In the meantime, you think about equality in Christ. Let me think about that one for a while. In the meantime, you think about equality in Christ. Here's the wonderful twist of this little conversation. Paul is bringing this whole big theological discussion. And he's saying, well, look at the community of faith where you're living. And tell me, what's going on there? What's being expressed there? Is what is being expressed there an expression of grace and unity in Christ? Is what's being shown there an expression of the promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the peoples? Or is it something else? And Paul does this uh, bringing home the issue in a wonderful way. When he, in the verses uh, 28 to 29, or 26 to 29, he brings in what the people at his time would know is a reference to the liturgy of baptism. He says, For all of you were baptized into Christ, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And it was part of the, of the ceremony, of the liturgy, of the practice of baptism in the early church. It was a common practice that they would clothe themselves with a new white robe after baptism as a symbol that they were now belonging to the community of the believers. And he says, you have clothed yourself with Christ, and now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. 
If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. There's an interesting translation thing here as well where it says, neither Jew nor Gentile. It can also mean that you aren't Jew or Gentile. It's a little twist. You don't, depending on the translation, they'll go one way or the other. But the question is, you are, ne- you are no longer dividing, but you're coming together. You are no longer in a community, whether if you're Jew, you're in, and if you're Gentile, you're out. Whether if you're male, you're in, if you're female, you're out. Where if you're slave, you're out. <laughs> and if you're master, you're in. But you're in a community where you are all in because of grace, because of Christ. And if the expression of hardness of the law that these false teachers were bringing upon Galatians was breaking that unity in Christ, it was an expression that was something other than the grace which Paul sees all the way from Abraham to Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus. But for us, on the other hand, right? Because that's not our issue, is it? But if, on the other hand, we're not seeing, (laughs) we're not allowing the realities of brokenness to be shed light on by the gospel and handle them into expressions of unity, then we're also forgetting the principle of grace. And we keep on coming back to this, right, every Sunday, because this is what Paul is hitting at. What are our expressions of faith and our understandings of how we live it out doing to our community? And how are we expressing in our community the unity of Christ? Sometimes our arguments are arguments away from. There are arguments that exclude or there are arguments that keep us a distance. But when Paul says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, then he is inviting us into something else. And what does that look like? That's been the question almost every Sunday, right? As we read through Galatians. What does that look like? And again, as it was a couple of weeks ago, the question for us is, what are, our, what are the things in our own tradition, in our own expressions of faith, that were perhaps genuine, honest outgrowths from the revelation of God, attempts to figure out how to live in the world, but they have become mechanisms of exclusion and death. What are the things that we might have misused or that we might be bearing against the other? Going back to this dialogue that John Dominic and and Jonathan Reed imagine, that's the uncomfortable (laughs) 
question that Paul makes in the end, right? We want to sometimes answer the big questions, the theoretical ones, or perhaps we want to stay there because it keeps our hands clean, away from the dirt. Do you think, Paul, that it is God's will for all people to be equal with one another? Well, let me think about that. In the meantime, you think about equality in Christ. There's so many things that are worth fighting for in the world. For the equality of people, for the inclusions of those who suffer, for the healing of wounds and brokenness, for the gathering of people that have been divided, for the possibilities of forgiveness and reconstruction. And there's the question, how is this taking shape here in OIC, in our community of faith, in your personal relations? And it's one of the sad testimonies of the church in history that we haven't always been the ones expressing unity in Christ. I think we need to own that. But Paul speaks of hope. There's something profoundly hopeful about saying that God was already acting in grace in Abraham as he was in Jesus and as he is today. There's something about insisting that God is capable of birthing life in the reality of time here, now, then, and hereafter. This hope, this faith we proclaim with our lips and we need to proclaim with our bodies, with our communities, with our relationships, with our choices towards love and away from hatred. Can we bring that witness to the world? I think we'll start to get what Paul is talking about. But you, think about what it means to be clothed with Christ and emerge into a life where we are one. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you into the darkest days and the days of hope that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world, serve each other, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.